turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, page 974. I turned up again this morning a book that I read during my time at college, the opening line of which struck me. The author said, the more you look at Jesus, the more you will want to serve him in the world, provided it's the real Jesus you're looking at. The more you look at Jesus, the more you will want to serve him in the world. Let's pray. Father God, as we come now to your word, we pray that we would see Jesus, see him for whom he really is, and Lord, that you would draw us to know him better and to love him more and to serve him in this world. Amen. There are few things in life that make us feel helpless like death does. A friend tells you that their mother or father has died, or their husband or their wife, or worse still, their child. You don't know what to say, and you don't know what to do. There are a few things in life that make us feel helpless like death does. In verse 18 of Matthew 9, Jesus finds himself right in that situation, right at that moment. A ruler comes to Jesus, kneels before him and says, My daughter has just died. Matthew doesn't tell us the ruler's name, but both Mark and Luke do tell us in their account. This is Jairus, the ruler in the synagogue. The story is well known to many of us. This important leader here falls on the ground before Jesus. Now, that's strange for a start, because rulers are people who are used to others falling on the ground before them. Rulers don't kneel before anyone. But here this important ruler kneels before Jesus. Now, why is that? Well, just because Jairus kneels before Jesus, it doesn't mean that Jairus knows who Jesus is. It doesn't mean that he knows that Jesus is the Messiah. It certainly doesn't mean at this stage that he knows that Jesus is the Son of God. Jairus kneels before Jesus, I think, just simply for one reason— He's heard that Jesus can heal people. Jairus tells Jesus that his daughter's just died, but he doesn't say it with the heartbroken resignation of someone who knows it's all over. Instead, he says it with, a, with almost a, a desperation. He's coming to Jesus precisely because he doesn't think it's all over. He thinks Jesus can heal her. 
He thinks that Jesus can heal her from death. He says, come, put your hand on her and she'll live. Now, if you were here last week, you'll maybe remember an illustration that David Jackson used when he was talking to the boys and girls. Remember he talked about the two goldfish who had died in his house? He talked about all the things he tried to do to bring them back to life. He changed the water, gave them new clean water to see if the dead fish would come back to life. And of course they didn't. He gave them fresh food. And again, it wasn't enough to bring the fish back to life. David went on to, he opened it up for discussion with the boys and girls, and he asked them for suggestions. What can we do to bring these dead fish back to life? And even right down to the very youngest child, the penny dropped. The realization was stark. Nothing. There's nothing we can do to bring dead fish back to life. You see, the kids knew what we all know. Dead fish can't be brought back to life. And neither can dead people. When someone's died, there is nothing we can do about it. That's where our sense of of helplessness in this situation comes from. If we were friends of Jairus and he had phoned us to tell us that his daughter had died, we'd say, I'm so sorry. We wouldn't know much else what to say. And we wouldn't know what to do. But there's one thing that's for certain. It wouldn't cross our minds to offer to come round to his house and heal her. And it wouldn't cross his mind to ask. We all know that you can't heal people who are dead. Jesus seems to think he can. As soon as Jairus tells him about his daughter and asks him to come to his house to lay his hand on her, as if it's the most natural thing in the world, he gets up to his feet, starts heading for Jairus' house, and the disciples fall in behind him. He appears to be on his way to heal a dead person. Sometimes it helps with these biblical scenes to try and imagine what they might look like if they happened in our context today. What I'm picturing here is is a dark Mercedes with police motorbikes as outriders. The Harley Street specialist is on his way to the house of some high-up government official. They, They move through the rush hour traffic, carve their way, Anybody in the way is quickly shooed off to the side. The guys selling the big, big issue and, and any street traders quickly shoot out of the road to, to make way. Nothing can stop this healer on his way. Now, Jesus' disciples, I'm picturing something like that going on here. So they know he's on the way to a very important ruler I suppose their job on this occasion is to keep the crowds out of the road and and to get Jesus to Jairus' house just as quickly as possible. Nothing must slow him down. They must have been mortified when this woman breached the security cordon and she grabbed hold of Jesus. Matthew tells us in verse 20, 
She's been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She came up behind him and touched the end of his cloak. This woman's been bleeding for 12 years. Most likely, she's bleeding from her womb. Her 12-year period could well have put her life in danger. We don't know. She certainly had to come to terms with living with a, a huge level of inconvenience. And what's this done for her social life? Well, actually, this woman doesn't have a social life. You see, nobody in that society will come near her. Her condition carries a stigma that it wouldn't carry in our society today. This woman, you see, is ritually unclean. She's somebody you don't go near. The Jewish law states it clearly, and I quote now, When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she'll be unclean as long as she has this discharge. Anyone who touches her or the bed she lies in or the place where she sits will be unclean. For 12 years, this woman's been told that she's not fit for keeping company. Not with God. She's not welcome in the temple or any place close to it. And not with other people. Because nobody wants anything approaching physical contact with her. Because that would make them unclean too. This woman is a bit like the leper we learned about in chapter 8. This woman's another one of that society's untouchables. Somebody you don't go near. This this 12-year nightmare has taken its toll on the woman's self-esteem. Look at how she approaches Jesus. She's not not brave enough to approach him face to face. She comes up behind him. She, She daren't speak to him or reach out to him. She simply grabs his cloak as he passes by. Although she clearly has no self-esteem or self-confidence, she has an incredible confidence in Jesus. She thinks that that touching his cloak is going to be enough to heal her. As soon as she does that, as soon as she reaches out, grabs the edge of Jesus' cloak, he turns and he sees her. So the disciples and the crowd, they all hold their breath because they know what's happened here. An untouchable has touched Jesus. What's he going to do? Well, in the kindest words imaginable, he says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. Take heart. This woman lost heart a long, long time ago. We don't know when it was. Was it when it finally dawned on her that her visit to to doctor after doctor after doctor in the greater Galilee region wasn't doing any good? They were good at taking her money from her, but none of them could heal her. Is that when she lost heart? Or was it when the years of social exclusion and loneliness began to take their toll? Take heart, 
says Jesus. It's going to be all right. He calls her daughter. This woman who's been kicked out of her own family and kicked out of polite society, Jesus says to her, it's okay. Come and join my family. Daughter. In verse 2, earlier in this chapter, Jesus turned to a paralytic and called him son. Jesus' family is open, even to the untouchables, to the outcasts, to those who don't normally fit. Jesus says to this woman, your faith has healed you. And Matthew tells us that she was healed from that moment. How is that? What's going on here? How is it that this woman was healed? What was it about her faith that healed her? Well, at first glance, we might imagine that it's the intensity of her faith. You know, she clearly somewhere has this huge sense of trust that something good is going to happen for her here. Maybe she's discovered the power of positive thinking. If you believe something strongly enough, it'll happen. If she really believes that she's going to be healed, then it'll work for her. Is that what's going on here? Is that the kind of faith that heals? No, it's not the intensity here of the woman's faith that brings her healing. It's the object. It's because she trusts in Jesus. She comes to the right place and she looks to the right person. It's Jesus who heals her. Now, her faith is still important in this. You see, her faith is the reaching out. Her faith is the opening of her life before Jesus. It's because she does that that the healing power of Jesus is able to be at work in her life. It's in that sense that her faith heals her. By now in this short series, we've seen Jesus heal lots of people. A leper, a centurion's servant, Peter's mother-in-law, two demon-possessed men, the paralytic, countless others who aren't named. This story just feels like it could easily blend in among all the other healing stories. I think, though, there's a unique significance in this story. I think it tells us about Jesus' love for the insignificant for the little people. You see, Jesus is on his way to the most important or one of the important houses in town. He's on his way to heal the daughter of a ruler. And he knows he can do it. The timing's not going to be a problem for him. But here is action so telling. He stops with a nameless, friendless, broken woman And he tells us at this moment when he stops with this woman that every person is worthy of his attention. His compassion and his love aren't limited to to the wealthy and to the rich and the influential. They're for all. He shares himself freely with little people, with untouchables, and he welcomes them into his family. There are lots of us here this morning, who who are concerned that we learn to follow Jesus. We want to become more like Jesus Christ. 
Well, are we ready to learn from Jesus in this regard, I wonder? Do you ever find yourself in church or somewhere else in a conversation with one person and at the same time you're looking over that person's shoulder to see if somebody more interesting or more important might be around whom you could talk to instead? Do you ever find that when you've made a commitment in your diary to be with this particular person, that something more exciting or attractive comes up or the opportunity to spend time with a bigger person? Do you ever feel tempted to to shelve the first plan so that you can take the second? Do we spend our lives currying favor with the big people and the influential? and ignoring the the smaller, the untouchables. If we do, we do not walk in the ways of Jesus Christ. You see, with Jesus, there are no big people and no little people. There are simply people. People who need to be loved and people who need his salvation. Let's keep moving with Jesus in the crowd. In verse 23, we see that Jesus finally makes it to Jairus' home. He entered the ruler's house and he saw the flute players and the noisy crowd. It didn't strike me while I was studying this at home, but when Yvonne read it, it did. It sounds like the 12th, doesn't it? I don't know if it's the, the 12th, wherever Jesus is, but the flute players and the noisy crowd are there. Actually, what Matthew's describing here is is a funeral, a very normal funeral in the context. When somebody's died, you hire in the professional flute players, and they play their laments. If you've ever seen coverage of a a Middle Eastern funeral, you'll know what Matthew's talking about here when he talks about a noisy crowd. There's a a very much more demonstrative culture where where people will wail and and even hit themselves in the head and, and so on. These people are very vocal in their mourning and grief. And, and I can only imagine that the, the intensity of grief here is greater than ever. This girl who died is 12 years old. So the, the level of, of tragedy here is greater even than, than with many deaths. Jesus is about to raise this girl from the dead. So all the loud mourning and, and the the flute bands playing their laments are entirely out of place. He just tells them to go away. Go away. The girl is but is not dead, but asleep. Now, Jesus isn't speaking literally here. It's not as though uh, everybody else got this wrong. The girl's just having a doze, and, and everybody else is preparing her funeral. No, no, this girl is clearly dead. Her dad knows that. Her family know it. The, the mourners and the musicians They know it. If she weren't dead, this whole gathering wouldn't be happening. When Jesus says that this girl is but asleep, he's making a point. Death isn't the final word. People can be brought back to life. Dead people can be healed. Jesus isn't denying that this girl's dead. He's simply making the point that 
that death isn't the end. When I hear Jesus talking here and he talks about a 12-year-old who's asleep, for Jesus to raise a person from the dead is every bit as demanding as it is for me to walk in to Sophie's bedroom and lift her out of the cot in the morning. That's how much it takes out of him to raise people from the dead. That's the power which Jesus Christ has. He can talk about death as sleep. It struck me as I I was thinking about this that one day I will die and there there may be a a funeral service where people will gather to to commemorate my life and and to celebrate uh, the good things that God has done for me. I would love it if on that day the people gathering understood that that wasn't the end of me. That there'd be a sense that this, this body in this coffin here, this body that's going to either be lowered into a grave or cremated, that this is not the end. That we're simply putting Christoph to sleep. Waiting for that time when Jesus will take him by the hand and raise him up. Maybe you think I'm soft in the head talking like this just now. We live in a a scientific world. We know that people don't rise from the dead. Well, so did the people of Jesus' day. I, I think it's important that we recognize that. They knew that you can't heal people who are dead. So Matthew tells us the people on that day laughed at Jesus. When he talked about this girl being not dead but asleep, they laughed at him. But then Matthew goes on to tell us that Jesus was as good as his word. In verse 25, after the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all the region. Of course it did. (laughs) Of course it did. If somebody was raising people from the dead in Valley Hackamore, word would spread. Let's close for now. What are we to make of all of this? Well, it seems to me that for those of us who follow Jesus Christ, these two miracles point beyond themselves to realities right at the heart of our Christian experience. When Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, that points to the work that Jesus does in all of his followers. He raises us from the dead. Some of us have already been raised from the dead. The Bible teaches, you see, that even before we die a physical death, we are dead. We're dead to God and we're dead to the the beauty of a life with him. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus raises us from that death. He takes us from a place where we don't know God and brings us to life. Paul writes to a bunch of of believers in Ephesus. Now, these people aren't dead, not the way you and I speak. Uh, These people are living and breathing in Ephesus. And Paul says to them, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But because of his great love for us, God made us alive. 
in Christ. There are people sitting in our pews this morning who have already been raised from the dead. God has taken them from that life of spiritual death and brought them to life. And of course, as we've been saying here this morning, those people believe that when when the time of their physical death comes, they believe that that won't be the end of them either. They believe that God will raise them even from that death. I want you to look back just for a second, one last time, at the episode of Jesus healing the bleeding woman. I want to draw your attention to one key aspect of that passage that's hidden in our, in our English translation. Whenever the woman approaches Jesus, the Greek literally says, if only I touch his cloak, I'll be saved. It's translated there as healed, but the word saved. And Jesus, he, he picks up that use of the word and he runs with it. When he replies, when he speaks to her, he says, take heart, daughter, your faith has saved you. And Matthew tells us that the woman was saved from that moment. Suddenly, this incident begins to look a little bit like the one of the paralytic that we looked at earlier in our series. Do you remember the paralytic? His friends brought him to Jesus on a mat. It looked to everyone as though this guy's biggest issue was his paralysis, that he needed to be healed. The first thing Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Of course he needed to be healed of his paralysis, but even more, he needed his sins to be forgiven. This woman needs to be healed of her flow of blood. Of course she does. But even more, she, as all of us do, she needs to be saved. She needs to be saved in a, in a more complete way. Friends, the greatest experience that you or I can know, the healing that we really need, is this one. The forgiveness of sins. To know that we are saved. To know that we're made right with God and raised from a spiritual death. Have you been healed by Jesus? Have you been saved? If not, learn from Jairus, this man who thinks that Jesus can raise him from the dead and discovers that he can. Learn from this woman who knows that she needs Jesus' healing and receives even more than she'd bargained for. Seek him out. Find him and trust in him. Let us pray.